Harry Carey Jr., who was, you know, one of the great Western stars in John Ford's company, and who Lillian had worked with his father. He said that when he went on the set and he was watching uh, the actors, and he said just watching Lillian Gish cross the room uh, was an incredible experience because no one could cross the room like Lillian Gish does. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of vintage film. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site for movies from the vintage era all around the world. D.W. Griffith and his company worked over a hundred years ago, but they're still in the news. In this episode, I talked to Mike Kaplan about the Lillian Gish controversy at Bowling Green State University, and to Tracy Gossel about preserving Griffith's early work with the Biograph Project. So don't be lonely in your villa. Subscribe to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and leave us a rating or a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts, too. Thanks. Lord, save little children. You'd think the world would be ashamed to name such a day as Christmas for one of them and then go on in the same old way. My soul is humble when I see the way little ones accept their lot. Lord, save little children. The wind blows and the rains are cold. Yet they abide. That's Lillian Gish in Charles Lawton's The Night of the Hunter in 1955. She was 62 then. Forty years before, in 1915 and at the age of 22, she had been in D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. 62 might seem close to retirement age, but not for Lillian Gish. Her last film, The Whales of August, was in 1987, at age 94, giving her one of the longest starring careers in movie history, before her death at 99 in 1993. Now, 126 years after her birth, she's in the news again. In the 1970s, Gish left much of her estate, as well as memorabilia and costumes, to Bowling Green State University in her home state of Ohio. But today, The Birth of a Nation is seen, certainly accurately, as a white supremacist film. Griffith's name was removed from a Director's Guild Award some years ago. And now BGSU has removed the names of Dorothy and Lillian Gish from a theater on campus. From being one of the greats of American film and theater, Lillian Gish is quickly becoming persona non grata because of one film. In response, Mike Kaplan, who produced The Whales of August, gathered 50 notable people in film and film studies, from actors like James Earl Jones and Helen Mirren, to directors including Martin Scorsese, Bertrand Tavernier, and Joe Dante, to authors like Anthony Slide and Joseph McBride, to sign a statement urging the restoration of Gish and her sister's names to the theater. As the statement says in part, 
This controversy detracts from the great legacy Gish left us in her extensive and varied career. For a university to dishonor her by singling out just one film, however offensive it is, is unfortunate and unjust. Doing so makes her a scapegoat in a broader political debate. I spoke with Mike Kaplan recently at his home in Idaho. I guess you first got to know Lillian Gish while working on the 1967 film The Comedians. Right, right. I was uh, a publicist in, in the publicity department and had done a very kind of tedious publicity assignment for about three, uh, two weeks. And everyone else in the department was on a big junket in England. And so when they came back and uh, my reward, I'm being facetious in a way, <laughs> was that I could choose whoever I wanted to work with when the comedians opened. And so, you know, I had a big stellar cast of Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, and uh, Alec Guinness and Peter Ustinoff. And I, uh, and, and many, many of, of that time, great uh, African-American actors, including James Earl Jones and Cicely Tyson and Gloria Forster. And I chose to work with Lillian because I thought she stole the picture from everyone else. And the reason I, she just, you know, knocked me out. Uh, she had, she had the best life force in the movie. And she also had this fantastic scene where she was the only character to uh, uh, challenge the Tantan Makut, who were the, um, they were like the, the terrorist squad in Haiti. They were Papa Doc Duvalier's, um, you know, henchmen. And um, she actually, there's a scene, I think, where she's actually beating the chest of, uh, Raymond St. Jocks, when after they tried to uh, uh, brutalize um, Richard Burton. And so uh, just the way she did it and the, the force that came through and the immediacy of her uh, acting uh, drew me to her. And uh, of course, I knew who she was. I hadn't seen a lot of her silent movies, but I, I, I knew uh, what her reputation was. And uh, we just hit it off. And so I worked with her and... Uh, doing the publicity and we hit it off and then became very close friends and um, I wanted at that point I just thought that uh, I, I think I had seen another one of her silent films in a new night of the hunter and she had as much uh, full power as a sound actress as she did a silent so I wanted to show that um, persona and that spirit to uh, new generations and so I decided I was going to try to produce a film that would show her in a major way in a major role and not a supporting role and it took about 20 years to do that yeah <laughs> um, yeah I mean the Whales of August is a remarkable film in that the cast almost the entire cast is people with at least 50 years experience at that point mm -hmm. in the movies right and, uh, and she, of course, tops that as she was she was approaching seventy years' experience at that point. Well, yeah. Well, that was the intent in a way that um, <clears throat> I wanted to to be cast in with kind of legendary figures who the audience had grew, grown up with over the years in the the different roles that they played over their careers. But now, now they were all elderly, so they were getting I don't know the best way of of um, saying this without sounding, you know, um, high minded or whatever, but it, there was, there was like a resonance in the, in, in the, uh, 
in the casting so that the audience who grew up grew up grew up with them would be accepting them in their in their elderly years in their senior years and that would be you know a, a reflection on their own lives as well so they were uh bringing to uh, the movie, uh, the experiences they had with these actors over, you know, their entire careers. And that gave it another, uh, for, for those people who knew, who, who knew their careers gave it another level. And for those who didn't, they were just being exposed to, you know, great talent for the first time. So what was she like as a person? If the two of you became friends over that time? Simply put, she was someone that when you were with her, you just felt high being with her. She was filled with uh, uh, warmth and compassion and curiosity and imagination and humor. And um, she was just totally charismatic and she uplifted you. And I think she uplifted you in all of her the movies as well, whether the, the, the roles were serious or comedic or uh, had... Uh, um, questionable elements to them like in the cobweb or whatever but she was just had the strength as a personality as as a human being that that came through and she was an, an you know an incredible actress there's a i don't know if you've seen the blu-ray there's a blu-ray of um whales that came out last year it was some kind of anniversary issue and i did a lot of um um extras for it and um the, the one that I like the best is I call it Pietor, P-E-E-R, because it's got the first interviews that the entire cast did on set because there was no press allowed. They had never spoken about the movie before. They had never spoken to the press before. And each one's on for about 10 to 15 minutes. And, you know, they talk about the entire history of film is there. And uh, Harry Carey Jr., uh, who was, you know, one of the great Western stars in John Ford's company and who Lillian had worked with his father. Um, he's, he's among the most, uh, they're all fascinating, but he said that when we, he went on the set and he was watching uh, the actors and he said, just watching Lillian Gish cross the room uh, was an incredible experience because no one could cross the room like Lillian Gish does. And, you know, you just mesmerized and she just had this, uh, luminosity that that uh, is kind of intangible, I think. So we just kind of hit it off, and I told her that I wanted to find a movie for her. And uh, there were other projects that developed uh, to some degree, but nothing that clicked. And um, so uh, when it finally happened, it was uh, seven years after I had found the play, and so um, and twenty years since I had this mission to uh, find a movie that would be suitable for her. And she was just, um, I, I don't, you know, she just, uh, the only thing I can say is I think everyone had this experience with her. She had great wit and imagination and you met, you, you felt high being with her. At least I did. And, uh, and I can't think of a higher compliment. There's something that I wrote that when we screen whales, um, at the show East convention in Atlantic city in 1987 for the exhibitors. It's a big trade. They have one on the West coast and one in Vegas, one on the East coast. And we screened whales and she was there. And, um, at the end of it, I was, you know, in, in the, uh, exit area, you know, wanting to hear what people had to say. And this female exhibitor came out and she was, you could tell she was awestruck. I mean, she was kind of walking in a daze and, uh, kind of just finally went up to her and said hello. And then she, uh, she finally said to me, she's like E.T. 
she was referring to <laughs> Lillian. And I thought that was the best compliment she could ever have received. In the 1970s, she got involved with Bowling Green State University and the idea of, uh, I guess, endowing a kind of film program and theater there. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Lillian and Dorothy were born about 20 miles away from where Bowling Green is. So there was a very smart... uh, film professor there called Ralph Wolf. He's now professor emeritus. He's retired. He just turned 88. And he uh, instituted the idea of having uh, a film theater and a film program and naming it after uh, Lillian. And she said it should be named after Dorothy and Lillian. And um, so she uh, endowed uh, a scholarship program, which Ralph and and, uh, I think some funds for the theater as well to begin with. And then Ralph went out and raised the rest of the money from, you know, his different sources, including his own, uh, who would be benefactors or donors to the big Dorothy and Lillian Lillian Dish Theater and um, the um, endowment scholarship program that she started. So there have been a lot of Gish scholarship um, graduates over the years. And then there's also, there's also a gallery, a little gallery there of Gish memorabilia that was collected that she donated and other people uh, uh, donated over the years. And um, it, it was in this location, in this one th- uh, building for um, 40 years. And then uh, the university decided that they wanted to change the building to a business college. So a lot of it had to be um, changed uh, um, design-wise inside. I don't know the particulars of that, and I don't know why they couldn't have kept the theater there, but they decided they wanted that space for some business use. And um, so they moved it to uh, the student union, And that's when this whole um, controversy erupted. So what got people riled up about the birth of a nation specifically, as opposed to the totality of her career? From what I know, from my uh, knowledge of it, is that uh, it was last February, and uh, which was Black Education Month or African. I I was some kind of um, monthly anniversary. So they, they were showing some films, including... Uh, the documentary 13, and I believe Ava DuVernay was there. And uh, it was shown in the Gish Theater. Mind you, Birth of a Nation had never been shown on campus before, and um, uh, Ralph Wolf never programmed it because Lillian never made any appearances with it, uh, aside from, I guess, maybe when it first opened. I, 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 I don't even know how much she did then because, I mean, it was all built around D.W. Griffith. The actors weren't even named on the poster or anything. And um, so uh, some uh, students, including some from the Black Students Union, recognized that Lillian was in uh, Birth of a Nation because the documentary 13, which I haven't seen, but evidently just show has excerpts from Birth of a Nation in the most um, racially uh, poisonous uh, sequences of the film, which is not the entire film, but it's definitely, you know, uh, uh, reprehensible in, in the politics of, of it, referring to the Ku Klux Klan, etc. So um, as a result of that, 
um, and being what I think is in the diversity uh, zeitgeist right now, um, um, they complained to the university that they were somehow offended by having the Gish Theater on campus when she was in this uh, um, this racial, racist movie, and they said that the university was condoning racism by allowing uh, by having her name on the theater. I mean, which is a uh, you know uh, just ridiculous. Anyway, so they they started this task force, and from my point of view, immediately I think the whole task force was loaded uh, to begin with, and was a setup because it was consisted of six uh, students and um, six administrators or professors from within Bowling Green. So it was done in this bubble with the objective to uh, uh, remove the name of the theater to avoid any kind of uh, protest that could get more attention to the university, which would be against the current uh, uh, diversity um, um, popularity. Or I don't know. If, Initiative, how about yeah. Yeah. So, so all these people, so they wrote this task force thing and I've, I've spoken to uh, the head of the uh, alumni chapter of the, um, of, of Bowling state, which is the biggest and the most important in the country. And she was outraged that they were doing this and uh, they never, they mentioned her in the task force as someone who was approving of what they, what they did, which was totally wrong. And then they're citing birth of a nation as the movie that everyone immediately associates with Lillian Gish, which is a joke. All of her major movies and performances came afterwards. And people, I haven't seen it, and a lot of people that I've spoken to don't even remember the scenes that she was in. The only thing that I remember of her in Birth, in Birth of a Nation is the still, this little scene that, I don't know, crops up every once in a while, where this union century is outside her house, which... And she's from a northern family and an abolitionist family and a nurse to begin with. And they're kind of flirting with each other. That's the only uh, memory that I have of, of her in the film. And um, they, they, they're equating the importance of her role in um, Birth of a Nation to that of Julie Andrews in The Sound of Music or Sidney Poitier in The, in the Heat of the Night. Uh, that 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 her role is as important to her career as those were to theirs. I mean, it was so, shows a complete ignorance of film scholarship to begin with, to even uh, make that claim. And they found some, I was just thinking about it today, some quote from some 1937 issue in Stage Magazine where she talks about the power of movies, can uh, how, how influential they can be. And they're using that... Uh, as a uh, a point to say that uh, she recognized that when she made Birth of a Nation. So what Birth of a Nation is saying, uh, you know, they're just twisting everything around to come to the conclusion that they want to change the name of the theater. All this happened, I had no idea about it. I'm on the, so the advisory committee of the Gish Theater, sort of an honorary position. But our names are on it, including uh, those of... Uh, Lauren Hutton and uh, George Stevens Jr. and a few other people. And none of us were ever made aware of this was happening. I just happened to be in New York uh, with having dinner with some friends. Uh, and um, one of them said, isn't it terrible what's happened about Lily? And I said, what are you talking about? 
And so he told me, this was in May, this was the beginning of May, uh, I think when they made the announcement. And that's how I, I got involved in it. And then uh, he sent me Joe McBride's brilliant essay, which ran in bright lights, uh, which condemned the whole um, um, thinking behind this. And I, I was just, I'm just curious. I mean, she was one of the most um, good people and uh, impressive people you could ever meet. I mean, there was a, a, a bad bone in her body. I mean, so they, and to attack her with, with a stellar reputation on top of she's this legacy that she's provided for artists with the Gish Prize, which is uh, she endowed and which gives uh, artists who have made a contribution to humanity. It's a very high, uh, highly esteemed and very valuable prizes between $250,000, $300,000 every year. And there are uh, six or seven African-Americans who have won it, including Spike Lee and, and the jazz saxophonist uh, uh, Ornette Coleman and uh, Bill T. Jones and Anna Devere Smith, in addition to uh, Frank Geary and Bob Dylan and um, uh, Laurie Anderson. And so... Um, it's basically for some for a human, so a man or a woman who contributes to society and uh, makes you understand the joy of living. I mean, so it, it's something I'm paraphrasing it, but uh, or the joy of being a part of mankind. And so her, that's her philosophy. And so to uh, stain her reputation with this removal of her name is, is uh, sacrilegious. It's just, uh, it's infuriating, and uh, that's why we've gotten, you know, all these people to sign on to the statement. And in addition, there's a public petition that you can get on, uh, or I can email you the link, and you can give to your audience of people who are signing on to it. And there are only over uh, a thousand signatures on it already. So, I mean, the university... Um, I don't know if we can ever get them to restore the name, but we're going to do our best to try because um, they'll have to figure out a way of saving face. And I don't know if they're smart enough to do that or even <laughs> inclined. Yeah. Well, tell me what uh, you said she didn't appear with screenings of Birth of a Nation. What, what do you think her attitude toward the, the film was? I, I mean, I, I, I never discussed it with her, to tell you the truth. So I, it's hard for me to say. From what I've gathered, um, I think that, um, you know, she was 20 when she made the movie. Uh, she'd been acting since she was five years old to support the family as a child actress on stage. And she had made a lot of short films with Griffith up, up, in, uh, up until that point. And he thought that she was the, great, the greatest actress that he ever worked with. And so this, I, th- I believe Birth of a Nation was the first, his first feature film. It was a huge epic. And um, he was regardless of what the politics are in the movie, I mean, he was regarded and accepted as one of the great film creators of the grammar of movies and put movies onto another level, which is what a lot of people said when they saw uh, Birth of a Nation because of the scope, etc. So what she, what she uh, thought about, I'm, I'm sure when she made the movie, and I don't know if even she even saw the entire script. I think that's in question to begin with because it was almost a three-hour film. It was unheard of at that point. So, um, I mean, she knew, you know, it had a big effect with people wanting to see it and, and all of that. 
the politics of it, I never discussed with her, and I don't think she was even uh, fully aware of it to begin with. And um, as the years passed by and there was all this controversy happened, and there was controversy with it to begin with, and there's a question, you know, Woodrow Wilson, when it, he screened at the White House and he said this, he was, you know, raving about it, and then when there was a lot of protests about it, then he took that back. But, you know, for 20-year-olds to go to the White House to see this movie that was uh, an epic that hadn't been done before, uh, and the directorial uh, work is significant on its own terms. I'm not defending the, the film by any means, but what she thought about it when she's 20 years old and working with the master of film um I don't think that the politics of it was something that that entered into her 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 being. I think that she was an you know she was an actress under contract, or I don't know if she was even under contract. I don't even know if they had significant uh, unions or anything at that time. I think it was too early. Uh, but I think Helen Mirren said the same thing that uh, an actor should not be penalized for the roles that they play. I mean, if you're going to take that attitude, then uh, anyone who plays a serial killer or a villain or a cop killer or a deranged uh, psychopath, you know, you could blame them for uh, someone seeing the movie and doing some kind of copycat crime. So it's crazy. These people are actors and that's what they're paid to do. So I never, I never spoke to her about it. I never even thought about Birth of a Nation in relation to her to begin with because it's a supporting role. And her iconic roles are all, you know, way down east with the ice flow sequence or Blood Broken Blossoms. There's a great story about Blood Broken Blossoms when, uh, do you know the movie? Sure, um, sure. Mike? You know, when she puts the two, two uh, fingers on the side of her mouth to smile because her father is berating her because she's never smiled. So she forces a smile. And there's a story that I've read, and she told me this also, that when the influenza epidemic happened in the 20s, uh, I think it was the 20s or the late teens, I don't remember late the teens. exact day. Yeah. Um, and her, her mother was sick in um, New York, and she was in California. She took the train back, and it was publicized that she was going back. And at every stop, there were hundreds and sometimes thousands of people uh, on the platform, giving her the smile as encouragement that her mother would be okay. And it was a tribute, to, I mean, to her impact. That story always sticks with me of how how uh, important she was to, uh, and how much she meant to the public by there doing that and, and repeating that classic movement that she did in the film. So it was Broken Blossoms and Way Down East and Orphans of the Storm and La Boheme and uh, The Wind and Scarlet Letter and uh, Night of the Hunter, those are, our, are her iconic roles. It's not Birth of a Nation. The other thing that they said that she never denounced Griffith as a racist. Now, I mean, I think it's appalling that they would even uh, make that statement. I mean, the man uh, made her into an international star, whatever she may feel, uh, and, she, and they said that she's not a racist, but to say that she, you know, who did they, anyone ever ask her to denounce him to begin with? And she would, she would, she would never do anything like that. I mean, the man was basically like, like a, like a father figure to her who, who uh, put her and her sister when they were in their late teens into, in, in, into films and, and created their, their, their careers and their lives and their impact. 
So even to ask her that question is like McCarthyism. It's just t- totally outrageous. But that's why I say the whole task force and, and the conclusions that they that they came to was just a setup. And and uh, and they never spoke to anyone who even knew Lillian, as far as I can tell. And they were and, and Dr. Ralph Wolf, who founded the the Gish Theater, <clears throat> they never even asked him to. Uh, to talk to them on the task force and they're, they're all at the same university. And so he had a right, he wrote a five page memo to them outlining her career and what the Gishtian meant and everything like that. And even after that, he sent it to them, uh, they never asked to see him in person. And then the Dean uh, has the audacity to say that, uh, you know, even though we're removing the name of the Gishtian, this is, this is not meant to be any disrespect to, uh, uh, Lillian Gish's artistry with Dr. Ralph Wolf. Give me a break. I mean, uh, I mean, it's so hypocritical, and they're keeping the endowment and and the, the memorabilia. Although I know that uh, Anthony Sly, the critic who is on the uh, board with me, uh, has asked for all his material, uh, memorabilia back, and they sent it to him. So the whole thing is just uh, appalling. And um, I mean, I'm not an expert on Griffith. I mean, I, and I, and I know uh, Broken Blossoms and uh, Orphans of the Storm and Way Down East. And um, I think those the three films that he did with her, and those are the ones that I, that I know uh, I know well. Uh, and uh, you can't deny his, his innovativeness and his uh, talent, uh, genius, as a... As, uh, a film, uh, a major film figure, even if they were, they were treating the theater as it was called the D.W. Griffith Theater and not the Lillian and Dorothy Gish Theater. And that is, and so that was wrong for the get-go. Um, and so why, you know, it, it's just, it's like, to me, it's like someone throwing a bomb at the Statue of Liberty to, to, to drag Lillian's name through this uh, after all of the wonderful work that she she did throughout her entire career as a uh, as a uh, humanitarian and as an actress and she's really responsible for film being being treated as an art form and as an important part of culture because she's campaigned on that level for 30 years she went all over the world talking about it started the museum of modern art film department i mean and so you could even make a case that it wouldn't even be film schools now if it wasn't for lillian gish Think of Lillian, think of grace and beauty, Lillian, she has charmed the world, Lillian, with her gentle beauty, conquering boundaries, she says it all, frolicking. That's Think of Lillian, a tribute song written by Mike Kaplan and performed by Sally Faulkner at the benefit premiere of The Whales of August in 1987 at the Plaza in New York. 
There will be links in the show post at nitrateville.com for a number of the things Mike Kaplan mentioned relating to the Bowling Green State University controversy. Also as mentioned, the wonderful film The Whales of August came out last year in a new Blu-ray edition from Kino Lorber, and a link to that will be there as well. Many of Gish's Silence are also available from Kino, while The Night of the Hunter is available from Criterion. One thousand and six. That's the number of people who've listened to episode 37 about the restorations of Becky Sharp and Detour. It's the first episode of Nitrateville Radio to break a thousand listens. Oddly enough, it was also the one where I wondered if we were getting too deep into the technical nitty-gritty of film restoration. Apparently not. So that desire will be gratified in the next segment. A Thousand Listens is pretty darn good for a film podcast. There are better known ones from people better plugged into the internet film world that draw less. So it shows that there's at least a certain audience for the geekiest of vintage movie interests. And that's where you can help too. One way people discover new podcasts is at iTunes or Apple Podcasts, which will be absorbing and replacing it shortly. And the way to make us more visible there is by leaving a rating and a review for us at either one. It'll show up in both places for now. So help us keep growing by going to iTunes or Apple Podcasts and leaving us a rating and a review. And soon, maybe instead of hundreds, we'll draw thousands, showing the strength of the market for vintage film and getting us all more of what we love. So do it today. Thanks. And you know, while you're at it, why not come visit us at nitrateville.com, the friendly, moderated, just-enough-to-prevent-internet-jerkery discussion site about vintage film. It's pretty cool how it all works. You meet people online on Nitrateville, then you go to festivals and meet them in real life, then you start doing something cool yourself, then you wind up on this podcast too. Anyway, come check it out. Now, let's get film preservation geeky. Whales of August was Lillian Gish's last film in 1987. Her first film, in 1912, was called An Unseen Enemy, and was directed by D.W. Griffith at the Biograph Studios in New York City. How much credit Griffith deserves for the early development of cinema as an art form is an ongoing debate. But if you want to see that development in one person's work, the shorts made by Griffith at Biograph, in the process creating stars like Mary Pickford, Lillian and Dorothy Gish, and Blanche Sweet, are an unparalleled record, in part because their survival rate is so high. Many survive as negatives, but some survive because the state of copyright at the time led to Biograph submitting many of their films to the Library of Congress as rolls of still photos, the so-called paper prints. But now it's the digital age, 
and taking a new crack at the Biograph films using the latest tools is the work of the Biograph Project of the Film Preservation Society, led by Tracy Gossel, who we last talked to at Nitrateville Radio about her book on Douglas Fairbanks, The First King of Hollywood. I spoke with her at her home in Los Angeles, where, yes, there are birds in her office. About uh, five or so years ago, I established a um, nonprofit, a 501c3 called Film Preservation Society, or FPS. The way you remember that is frames per second, FPS. So um, we did that so that we could work on restoring some of the otherwise lost or never seen Doug Fairbanks films, which I needed to do so I could see them to write about them in the biography. Um, once that was, um, done and we're not finished working on Doug films by any means, but, uh, once the biography was published and I sort of settled down and said, well, I probably got about 20 more years of my life where I'm copus mentis and (laughs) what do I want to do with sort of the next 20 years? And I thought, And more than anything else, I would like to be able to see every single biograph. And uh, for those folks, and I doubt there are many because uh, this is Nitrateville after all, uh, who don't know, the biograph films were the short, um, primarily one reel films um, or shorter made by D.W. Griffith between uh, June of 1908 and um, mid-1913. And in the course of those five years, movies went from film to stage plays, essentially, to modern cinema. Um, all the techniques of cross-cutting and close-ups and um, panning and zooming, and well, actually didn't zoom much, but um, much of um, that which we associate with cinema today um, was either invented by or used by and optimized by uh, D.W. Griffith, who was um, the the main director at the Biograph Studios in those years. And it's, it's as if you're looking at the evolution of an art form, but um, that same evolution is withheld from most people. There are a few DVD box sets. Um, Those are often um, sometimes reconstructions with written um, later inserted intertitles that aren't the original intertitles or that are missing shots and scenes. But um, the, the vast majority of these films are sitting in um, their original negative form, often in the original shooting order um, or tinting order and unseen by anybody. If you went to Pordenone, Italy, between 1997 and probably about uh, you know 2005, you got to enjoy um, year in, year out, slowly seeing these biographs. But often they were um, not available or were in jumbled order or were in terrible shape. So think about if this was literature and you had Charles Dickens or Mark Twain, 
and you had Huckleberry Finn, but chapter one was in Great Britain and chapter two was in an archive in Russia and only in the Russian language. And chapter three is lost and chapter four is in New York. Um, we, we owe it sort of to posterity to put these things back together in their right sequence and as much as possible in the original um, pristine shape that if you get you're lucky enough to get your hands on a camera negative they're gorgeous um you know you can see the pores on henry b waffle's face uh, <laughs> in some of them so um that is when the biograph project started and you ask about the paper prints that brings us to sort of well what what, what are the sources of the biographs well there are um about roughly four different places you can look for them um, in the macro sense. There are about a hundred places we can look for them, but um, for those films where there no longer exists any print or any negative, we still are lucky enough up till mid 1912 in many instances to have a rolled strip of paper at the library of Congress called the paper print you could not copyright film until 1912. So the studios would literally print on paper each frame in a long strip, which you couldn't project, but they then submitted that, that um, reel of paper to the Library of Congress and in a sense had a record. So that's source number one, if you can come up with a way to to scan and reconstruct the paper prints. Source number two um, is the camera negatives and positives that exist at the um, Museum of Modern Art. And this is the primary source and um, uh, is something we'll, we'll talk about. Source number three is the Pickford biographs. Mary Pickford made an effort to buy up um, the rights, the copyrights and the negatives of all of her biographs, trying originally to just get them off the market so people wouldn't see um, these early primitive, what she thought were primitive films and uh, laugh at, at her. And nobody laughs at her. She was magnificent. But um, she had an intention to destroy at one point all of her, her um, early performances. And so those negatives exist in battered and chopped form uh, in many instances at the Library of Congress. And then finally, there are um, those positives and negatives that are in none of those places, but uh, sit hither and yon in the BFI or in a Russian archive, um, or in one instance, in uh, a guy's uh, storage vault in the valley in here, here in uh, Southern California. I I um, bought seven reels of biographs, some of which the Museum of Modern Art didn't have um, from a guy. And <laughs> these were camera positives uh, in six reels and a camera negative, an original camera negative for an Arcadian maid that you know, light fingers lifted sometime in the 30s and went 
changed hands from collector to collector. So the final source is sort of that underground of collectors out there. So we have um, different, a multi-pronged approach to capturing and identifying and restoring all of the biographs. And we started that process about three years ago. As far as the paper prints go, Mm -hmm. famously in the 1950s, uh, the Academy funded a program with a cinematographer named Kemp Niver. Yes, to to film them in 16 millimeter. Right. Yes, and so the paper, this is how people see the paper prints today. So when I I show a a re-scanned and reconstructed paper print, um, the, the purists say, wow, you can't say that hasn't been seen in 110 years. We've got the Kemp Niver prints, and indeed we do. And if you've ever seen one projected, God bless them, it's like looking uh, through Vaseline smeared lens <laughs> because the technology at the time uh, was such and the, the, the film stock they put it on was 16 millimeter. So um, I promise you what we're producing is better than um, what they were able to produce then, but not yet as good as it could or should be. And I'll explain the narrative uh, history. The Library of Congress, God bless them, um, invested a number of years ago in this scanning machine and uh, scanning software called Metastitch from a vendor in, I think it was in Scotland. And uh, the thing was produced and it was so ungainly, so impossible to work with that in the course of seven years, I think they scanned five, five um, reels of film for, you know, a particular project. Can, uh, Ken Burns would come in and need some footage of the Cubs in 1905 or something, and then they would get just that out. But it was a hellish, hellish um, prospect. So when I came to them and said, hey, a film preservation society wants to um, try and save these and scan them so that they actually can be seen in a meaningful way. They said, okay, here are, here's our equipment. Um, I said, what do you need? They said, well, we need an upgrade on the Metastitch software so a normal human being could use it. <laughs> so we funded uh, an upgrade of the software that took, of course, was supposed to take six months and took a year and a half. And then when the vendor said, okay, we're, we're done, here's your improved software, we funded um, a marvelous uh, archivist restorationist um, by the name of Dan Wingate to move to Culpeper. And for a year, his job was supposed to be to scan these films and use the software. Well, the dang machine didn't work. <laughs> it wouldn't advance the... the um, when I say the film, it wouldn't advance the paper. It it wasn't, um, it, they were down to using uh, paper clips and toothpicks. And, you know, he was essentially um, culling all the best mechanical brains he could find around the place and uh, spent much of that year just getting the machine to advance the, the paper film in a meaningful and consistent way. Um, Then it 
the software turned out to be consistently and persistently a nightmare. But we got in the course of his entire year there, maybe four um, films scanned. And um, Dan came back after his year there and uh, God bless Library of Congress. They committed, um, recognizing what a a disappointment the experience had been, they committed a team to continue to work with the scanner and to send the files to us here in LA. So we didn't have to keep paying for somebody to live in Culpeper to try and do it. So uh, Dan came back and um, wrestled with it and we got a couple of more films done. Um, and then we said, well, we, you know, Dan's got a life. He's, he's got other jobs. Um, so we brought on uh, a full-time, uh, again, archivist, uh, George Eastman scholar who um, knows how to do this, this really intense technical work by the name of Katie Pratt. And she and Dan got together and experimented and worked. Um, and Dan got a light bulb over his head. And they discovered that the Adobe Premiere software would actually work better than this uh, expensive custom Metastitch in doing what they needed it to do. Because the way the scanner works is it gets four frames at a time. And I wish it were just one frame at a time, then life would be easy. But it's four frames at a time. And then the software has to literally cut out each frame get its borders and put them in sequence and put them in sequence with the four frames that came before and the four frames that came before that so that you have, you know, a a series of stills that constitute a moving picture. And they discovered running side-by-side comparisons that when they did it through this cheaply commercially available product that had been sort of upgraded in the interim years, uh, while we were wrestling with Metastitch, they got a more stable and better result. And we discovered that Metastitch had been dropping frames. So suddenly there are portions of the picture that we thought were jump cuts or weren't there that that we got back. Oh, so um, we are now going back and re um working we're not rescanning but we're working with the original uh huge huge files um for the uh scans for all the the first pictures we did in the in the original year and a half and are redoing them and now going forward for the paper prints we're using this new technique and just yesterday katie brought over um the first film we've done all the way through with the the new uh, Adobe Premiere technique, and it's a 1908 uh, September 1908 film. That's the first film Florence Lawrence ever appeared in for Biograph, called The Girl and the Outlaw, and it looks sensational. Um, it's still from a paper print. It's not as pristine as the 35 millimeter. But uh, given how we've been able to see it in the past, it's like suddenly, uh, you know, a window is opened into uh, an autumn day in um, New Jersey and you're seeing something that's been kept from us for more than 100 years and it's marvelous. So 
Um, we are now on a slow and uh, very expensive path doing the paper prints, but we've got that cat skinned and it's, it's lift and we we're now um, our rate limiting step is sort of some of the paper print rolls had been rolled up backwards oh. uh, <laughs> with the, with the stuff facing the images facing the wrong way. And they, you know, do you change the scanner and how you're um, capturing the image or do you try to hand roll the film back or the paper, this brittle paper back another way. And that's something that uh, the archival experts at the library of Congress are wrestling with now, but we are on track and we are getting um, these early, early, otherwise, you know, not available uh, or not available in a viewable form biographs seen again. And the wonderful thing is, on these paper prints, sometimes they're intertitled or otherwise ought to be lost. That that uh, people were, um, you know, David Shepard, who to me is one of life's heroes, but he he was um, composing his own biograph intertitles for may, many of the releases he put out. When in fact the true intertitles were available, they were just hidden there on the paper prints. Hmm. And so we're going to get the the proper intertitles. And also many of the 35 millimeter um, copies are missing shots or scenes. Um, if you've ever seen those awful hats, there are people in a movie theater watching a movie. The nitrate print, the movie itself is badly degraded, but on the paper print, it's pristine. Huh. So we can work with the 35 millimeter for the three quarters of the screen and then digitally put in the non-degraded image from the paper print or the movie that they're watching. So the paper prints will serve um, as a wonderful resource. The last shot from his son's, ret son's return, which is the Pickford, that the Pickford Foundation restored um, with UCLA, they were missing the last shot. So they used the, the very fuzzy paper print um, 16 millimeter that Kemp Niver had produced, where well, we rescanned that final scene and got a lot more of the image, and it looks a lot better. So when we reissue um, the Sun's Return, 90% of it will be the pristine 35 millimeter that the Pickford Foundation people um, were able to source, and then it, the last shot will be at least from a, a superior scan. Now, how many films did Griffith make at Biograph? Do you know offhand? Roughly 465. Um, the reason I'm hedging is if you look at the um, seminal work that was done through the Port Noni Silent Film Festival, the, the Griffith Project, they produced a series of volumes um, and had a write-up for each Biograph. But some of the films that they attributed to Griffith uh, later turned out, oh, no, that was released on a Thursday. Tony O'Sullivan directed that one. Um, or uh, sometimes the count is off because there was a biograph that the censors never would approve of and never did get released, but the negative exists. So how many of those are represented by the paper prints then? Um, that's an excellent question. The pa there are more paper prints than we need to scan. 
um, because the paper prints exist up till mid-1912, but the, uh, the films for which only paper prints are available, oh, I'm eyeballing. We created a huge database of every biograph and, you know, every source for every biograph. Um, so I look at a spreadsheet for 1908, about half of the um, uh, 49 films in 1908 are available only as um, uh, paper prints. Once you get to 1909, there's a huge number of paper prints, but far fewer of them are um, not available in another source. So uh, Cricket on the Hearth, for example, there is an incomplete nitrate negative at uh, MoMA, and then there's the 35 millimeter paper print at Library of Congress. So, you know, we that's kind of half and half. So the the count is um, imprecise. But I imagine by the time we get to looking at all the 35s and seeing where we need to do some some paper print scanning just for a shot or a certain scene, we'll probably be scanning maybe somewhere in the order of uh, 40, okay. 50 paper prints. That's a, don't hold, don't put a gun to my head and hold me to that. Oh yeah. Even into 1910, as I look there, there's a number of uh, films that are really paper print where we we're going to have to go to the paper print because the nitrates incomplete. For example, well, on the reef, uh, MoMA doesn't have the complete negative. We thought we were going to have to go to the paper print. And remember me talking about, you know, meeting that guy in the valley and, and <laughs> buying those real Christine, 35 millimeter positive, struck from the camera negative. Um, that's right now, uh, Lobster Films, Blackhawk, Serge Bromberg's shop has that camera positive um, and are scanning it today so it's in my database saying oh you got to scan the paper print because moma had it as incomplete but now we've got a, a gorgeous gorgeous camera positive and um so people are going to get to to see it and even in portnoni people didn't get to see that because there was no positive struck um they just had the nitrate negative and it was incomplete so you know the, nobody has seen that film since uh, 1910. And it's, you know, it's Marion Leonard and Henry B. Walthall, if I remember correctly. And it's, you know, it's, it's a good film and it's exciting uh, to suddenly see the unseen again after all this time. Yeah. Yeah. So that's your workload then is those, is the 40 paper prints. Plus the, all the negatives um, because we're working with MoMA and with Library of Congress um, and funding the scanning or re of all the available, all the optimal best material. We've emphasized so much the paper prints. I do want to acknowledge the cooperation of, uh, for example, the Pickford Foundation. In uh, you know, yes, they don't, they no longer own the rights to um, those biographs that Mary Pickford bought back in the day. Um, but they've still been very generous with uh, sharing any and all uh, restoration work that they've done to date. And um, they, for example, they were the ones who tipped me off to the guy in the valley. Um, 
also um, to acknowledge uh, Dave Kerr and um, Katie Trainer and the fabulous people at the Museum of Modern Art. They're going to be opening up the vaults as soon as the rest of the their building project is over. So hopefully by this fall so that we get access and are able to work with them and scan their huge um, collection of negatives. Also, I just want to make sure that uh, people like Mike Michon and David Pierce and Heather Linville at the Library of Congress get a tip of the hat because they're investing time and, and sweat equity They've got plenty on their plate already. And then some outsider comes in and says, I want to save the biographs. <laughs> it was kind of my idea. And I'm I'm sort of shoving the money around and trying to push people at it. But there is just a an army of skilled, talented um, archivists and restorationists. You know, uh, Serge Bromberg and Emil, um, his team, uh, from Lobster Films. I mean, all of these people are are part of the project and are working on it and, and need to be acknowledged. And what do you see happening with the films once this work is done and we have pretty much the complete biograph or the nearly complete biograph catalog again? Oh, I, I'm going to sit in my basement and not let anybody see them. Yeah, great, great. <laughs> no, um, my dream, of course, is to get them out to everybody. Um, I I always use my uh, buddy J.B. Kaufman as my kind of lodestar. J.B. Kaufman is a, a great, um, he's not only a Griffith scholar, but he's a Disney scholar. And this is a guy who spent his entire life in Wichita, Kansas, and still lives in Wichita, Kansas. So You know, you know where I'm from, don't you? No, where? Wichita, Kansas. Oh, darn so you couldn't pop over to MoMA the day they're biographs. <laughs> you can't be at UCLA the day that they're oh, and yet these archival people go. Well, we've already screened that. People don't need to see it. Yes, they do. <laughs> there's the whole world. I'm from Wisconsin. I mean, there, there's a world of people uh, out there, and hopefully, you know, a lot of them listening to your podcast who dearly want to see this stuff or say your interest is in, you know, the performances of Mary Pickford or you're a Lionel Barrymore fan, or you're interested in how D.W. Griffith um, treated native American stories or urban stories um, or, you know, Westerns you with the relational database and the, the full biograph uh, catalog I would hope very much to have all of this available for streaming uh, or and or a you know huge Blu-ray box set. But remember, it's a 20-year project, um, primarily because I'm slowly funding it out of my own pockets. I'm not, uh, you know, David Packard or Martin right. Scorsese. <laughs> I've got to earn the money each year and then whatever's left over goes into um, Film Preservation Society. And so um, uh, I like to make the joke that one woman can have a baby in nine months, but you can't pay two women to do it in four and a half. Right. <laughs> um, some of this work is sequential and very slow and time consuming. And so, you know, they, they can only scan um, so quickly 
at a Library of Congress, they've got other things to do. They've, you know, they they can only um, process these images. Literally, the the machines are running. It's taking a week or more uh, just to get the the image as a file. But then you can work on cleaning up and putting intertitles in and reconstructing in the correct order. Because um, often we get them in shooting order, not in um, final assembly order. Because biographs, um, they didn't cut the camera negative. They cut their prints, uh, assembled their each print individually wow. in the order, which is, yeah, kind of wild. But it does give us the the camera negatives, uh, and it, it's a um, marvelous way to see how, what it was like to shoot a film. Uh, you know, the horses go left, the horses go right. Now we're inside. There was one that um, James Cozart showed at Cinesation, uh, I think, some years ago. Transformation of Mike. I don't remember the name, but they, he had a reel and it was camera order. And it was sort of fascinating to watch kind of how he had his character, his actors play archetypes. So even when you couldn't really follow the story, you knew who everybody was. Oh, that's the father. That's, you know, that's the daughter. That's the suitor, that sort of thing. And it kind of gave me an insight into how he developed his, you know, the acting in his films. Oh, what an interesting um, uh, way to interpret that. I See, I watch them and I'd go, good thing he rehearsed them beforehand from the story from beginning to end because when they're shooting it, uh, I would see, okay, now they're leaving the house slowly and smiling. Then the very next shot, they're running out of the house looking distressed. Yeah. Now back in the house in a different costume. And, of course, you assemble it in the correct order. Um, the, the story makes sense. But it, it, if they hadn't rehearsed it beforehand, it, it really would have been confusing. And you can see why in the earliest days they did film it like a stage play and how breaking things down into the little individual shots was a complex process unless you had it all straight in your head. And they didn't have storyboards back then. I mean, he was carrying it in his head. Yeah, yeah. So as the rest of this episode is about, uh, Griffith mm -hmm. obviously is a character of some controversy now. What do you think is the value in seeing the Biograph films and, and focusing on his work as opposed to, you know, getting better acquainted with Maurice Turner or Irvin sure. Willett or whoever? There's been a little bit of a backlash against Griffith, not just obviously because of the racism of Birth of a Nation, but because standard film history for so many decades said Griffith was the first guy, Griffith was the master, and um, you know he uh, innovated most of these techniques, although not all. And then uh, every uh, historian who comes along later has to come up with something new. So then they would say, well, but really Lois Wilson did this type of shot first or somebody else did. And they're all correct. But what's really uh, provides insight is you can see the rate of his uh, evolution, which is actually kind of slow, but steady. And you also, in seeing these biographs, get a larger view of uh, Griffith's sort of humanitarian view. So you see this racism in Birth of a Nation. At the same time, you will see um, uh, stories related to Southern um, 
uh, African-American uh, slaves or uh, citizens in the post-war period where they're the hero and the black man is, or the white man, excuse me, is often um, the villain. And there, there are all kinds of uh, stereotypes in his films, of course. But if you look at the ethnic stereotypes, and in particular the um, stereotypes as it relates to people of color, in the other films going on at the same time, uh, you suddenly see how Griffith is bringing a far more nuanced and in, in many ways and in many films far more humane and advanced view of be it Native Americans or African Americans. So um, everybody remembers the shot in Birth of a Nation where Henry B. Wathel won't shake the, um, the hand of the uh, carpetbagger um, half-black character and you know the people were supposed to be siding with uh possibly with henry b wassell's thinking but if you see his trust and his trust fulfilled the story evolves to the point where the lawyer at the end of the movie is proud to shake the hand of the former slave for what he has done and so you'll see, um, get a broader view of the subtlety and the breadth of Griffith's uh, social views kind of beyond uh, the birth of a nation. Sure, often Indians are shooting um, arrows at the cowboys, but just as many times the uh, Native American is uh, killing the cowboy and saving the heroine from a beating. Um, and uh, it, it's a value to see the entire body of anybody's work, uh, and particularly a seminal a figure like Griffith, who everybody else was copying. If we can do this and invest in the technology and, and the scanning and the, the tools, I'm hoping that then the next project may be the Tony O'Sullivan uh, you know, biographs, the Christie a biographs. Let's look. Let's get better scans of all these vitographs. Let's see what uh, you know. Maurice Costello was up to those days. Uh, he actually did some directing. If uh, you read Terry Shulman's upcoming um, biography of the the Costello family, so the technology we invest in now, starting with Griffith, will ultimately, I hope, broaden the availability of films from other filmmakers as well. Thanks to my guests, Mike Kaplan and Tracy Gossel, and to Matt Berry and Ben Urish. Music is by Kevin McLeod. Remember to subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and to leave a rating or review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts to help other people find out about us too. Thanks.